Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so excited to have Timothy Wyman on the Arthritis Life podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Um, can you just start off by letting everyone know um, where you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently living in the American Southwest in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, I actually moved down here because of my rheumatoid arthritis. Um, in terms of my relationship to rheumatoid arthritis, I've been I was diagnosed about 10 years ago. However, when I was about 19, I was diagnosed with mixed connective tissue disorder. So um, it just hadn't, my autoimmunity hadn't differentiated it enough at that time. So I've been dealing with autoimmunity now for 20 years and um, it's been quite a journey. Yeah, that is a long time. So you're kind of like me about half your life. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, half my life. And then it became about 10 years ago when I got rheumatoid arthritis, it became very uh, significant um, and affecting. In my 20s, I was well-maintained with mm. a mixed connective tissue disorder with hydroxychloroquine and occasional like prednisone. Um, and I was quite functional in terms of my capacity to do much everything or anything I wanted. Mm. Um, and then 30 came along and it advanced and it, you know, blocked a lot of that stuff or has interfered on and off with all of those things ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And we always start by talking about people's like diagnosis journeys or diagnosis sagas as they often are. I would love to hear just a little more about what, what were your first symptoms and what was like the emotional response to getting that definitive diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, if I start back at 19, I, I had a Raynaud syndrome and um, it was pretty severe. I ended up in the ER times and they even thought I was a burned or a frostbite victim at one point. 
Um, and that was a really scary time at, you know, 19, not knowing what was going on and having those kind of issues. Um, I eventually was able to get on appropriate medication and then I just have occasional flare-ups. I was told at the time by my rheumatologist that this could become lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. And I was, you know, young, 19. I didn't really think much of that or take stock into it. And I just kind of went on and lived my life. And then when I hit 30, I noticed I just started to slowly have this different onset of pain issues in different areas of my body. Um, it started more in my wrist. And um, I worked for like an hour, and, or not an hour, a year, a year, about a year and a half, I was slowly collecting these symptoms until it got so acute that I was unable to like perform the functions in my job. I was on the computer a lot. and. Um, and then I ended up, you know, going through the whole, uh, process of doctor after doctor, test after test. Um, and you know, that was a really scary time, very ambiguous. I didn't fully know what was going on one day or one week or one month. This I'd have another symptom or problem that I dealt with and then another one and, um, just ranging in different severe fatigue, severe pain, um, and what, what happened is my primary care eventually ran um, the blood test for rheumatoid arthritis. And I can still remember the day that I got that call, I, I, she was calling me to let me know that it looks like RA and I just was crushed, totally crushed because it runs in my family. And like I have a family member who was before the biologic era and they're just completely, um, have deformities in every joint that they have. Um, and so I was just kind of projecting like, is this now gonna be my new life? And um, yeah, so it was a really upsetting time. It took years to really uh, know what was going on. Um, there was also some, a lot of like uh, medical gaslighting going on. And um, so it was, it, was, it was a very difficult time in life and um, it, and just a general overview, it did take me a few years to kind of adjust, like um, to integrate it into my identity and, um, you know, get out of denial about some of it. And um, yeah. it still, you know, affects me today. And I mean, I plan that it probably always will on some level. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's kind of a rough overview of my, my general trajectory. Yeah, I think it's very common um, when you have a family member or friend or someone in your life who was diagnosed before the modern medication era in the last two decades, it is um, really, it's a really different prognosis. I could totally see how scary that that would be. Um, what was the other thing I've already wrote my own child. Sorry. I, I interrupted my own train of thought. Oh, I was going to say, you mentioned medical gaslighting. Um, I'm, I'm curious if that happened before or after your diagnosis, what, cause I experienced it in the lead up to the diagnosis with multiple doctors telling me I was not sick, just anxious. You're a hypochondriac stop coming. Like, don't come back. You're not, nothing's wrong with you. Like, or just go to just go to therapy to cure yourself of your hypochondria because you're not sick versus go to therapy to cope with this, this pain that you're having and uncertainty. So of course I didn't want to go to therapy because I was like, no, that would be proving you right. That this is all in my head. 
even though actually now that I've been to therapy, I know that therapy would have been really helpful to give me the skills to cope with the situation. You know what I mean? The lack of diagnosis, diagnostic clarity, but what did it look like for you? So, well, when I first had like a, a, like a really difficult onset, I was on the East Southeast coast in Florida and I was going to a doctor and um, he walked in, didn't examine me or anything, just looked at me, eyed me up and down and said, oh, you're, you're a young guy, you're fine. And (laughs) I was just kind of, I was just like, wow, like I can't believe what just happened here. Um, And he had left the room and I think that time I was just so disoriented, I didn't anything else to him he did have a, a training physician there and I uh, I told her like this is totally inappropriate this isn't how you handle and this is poor medicine I hope you learn that mm-hmm. um but still those little drops they kind of like seep into your head or they, they yeah. can and so there was a little bit of influence even though I knew what was going on was wrong and how he handled it um there's still kind of like that little part of me that was like, well, maybe I, maybe, maybe I am fine. Or maybe, um, you know, and, and, and also then at that time I started to work with a physical therapist and I was still in the process of getting diagnosed. I was awaiting tests and I just was having a hard time moving and I had less kind of like depressive affect and, um, just from complete lethargy, total fatigue, just so hard to even kind of lift my arms and everything. And he told me I needed to work on my attitude. And oh. I, I, walked, I walked away from that. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm buying into it and I'm believing it. And then like a couple of weeks later, I get the blood test back and my rheumatoid markers are off the charts, like mm-hmm. just, just um, crazy off the charts. So um, it, you know, it's those moments like that where it's like, wow, like I really bought into this person's line of thinking to my own detriment and there really is something going on here um and there's been other other times of that as well um later on after being diagnosed I I had a doctor like I some occasionally when I'm when I'm in a big flare-up sometimes I need like a handicap um Mm -hmm. or disability parking uh designation and I handed him like all my positive imaging, my blood results, a full like official functional capacity assessment. And he just looks up at me and he goes, do you really need this? And so I'm just, it, it, for sure with rheumatoid arthritis or any chronic illness, you do end up facing prejudice and discrimination. And sometimes in the places you would least expect it, right? We would think like in a medical field or a healthcare setting, yeah. there'd be, an actual understanding and competency around that kind of stuff. But I think for a lot of probably listeners and, you know, certainly myself included, but you're, you, you'll probably find if you haven't, that that isn't true. They, mm-hmm. a lot of people really don't know about um, disability. And mm-hmm. um, so I've had some great doctors too, like that have been very compassionate and understanding, but for sure there's been serial times when that, happened I even had a time when I was getting my blood drawn in a lab and I at that time um, my ankles had been so bad I, they'd been casted and and I wasn't able to really um, stand or walk in these big casts and they wouldn't give me a chair to sit on at the at the, at the oh my lab. gosh so um, it was the time of COVID and they were, they were like, really like, you have to be this feet apart or whatever. And, and so I was like, well, but I'm disabled <laughs> right now. And I can't, 
I can't stand and 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 like I even point into like there's a chair back there can I sit on it or can we take a chair outside and I can sit on it or and the front desk person was fighting with me about it and so you know there's these moments that I, I just think it's like unreal you're like am I seriously in this right now well um yeah I think ahead. I would say like and now I know you're like a you know a provider trained provider as well but for me it's like my impression after my two and a half year master's in occupational therapy is that the healthcare field is really good at preparing people to cope or to address acute health issues or health issues like a stroke that have a very like that have a trajectory where like you have a period of every day is steady recovery. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you, you do eventually plateau with like a stroke recovery, but point being like the healthcare education for occupational therapy was not as good at uh, preparing people for dynamic disabilities, chronic illnesses that are going to flare up where one day, yeah, you, you need the disability parking card, not because every single day you need it, but because one out of every three days you can't function. And it's very hard for people who haven't coped with, had to live with that before or live with someone who've gone through that to understand like, well, if you could do it yesterday, why can't you do it today? You know, that's like my least, that's like my least favorite thing. I like want to like go around the universe with like a sign being like, if you could do it yesterday, does not mean you can do it today, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And people really struggle with conceptualizing that. And, you know, we would hope the standard would be better in the medical field that you, I mean, 40% of Americans have a chronic health issue. They're managing 60% have multiple. Um, chronic health issues are managing and so we have that reality and then the reality of how people are experiencing the healthcare system um, and it's quite a problem it's quite an issue and I, I whether I've been in a, a rheumatoid or chronic illness support group or I ran one um, like the number one complaint I hear is my doctors don't understand me my health care providers don't get it and and we have to pause and go, you know, what's going on here? That this is like your main job and you're not understanding these aspects. Where are we failing in terms of training and education and um, those kind of things? But absolutely, it's hard for everybody to grasp dynamism in, in your health. And mm -hmm. we suffer a lot because of that. Absolutely. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up, I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step -step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. 
I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group, where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through. People who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March, 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T and capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. Yeah, and this this is a great time to kind of um, just start discussing like the different intersection of different identities. Cause we're talking a little bit about like experiencing maybe ableism or distrust within the healthcare system. And then there's also different kinds of discrimination people can face due to, you know, their ethnic identity or sexual identity. And, and, you know, I'm just curious if you want to share more about your, you know, before we started this, uh, recording, you let me know that this is something that you, um, really love, love talking about. So I would love to hear your perspective on the intersection of all your different identities. Yeah. I mean, I think if we, you deal with a health issue, um, it really matters what age are we, what sex or gender identity, uh, what ethnicity, race, um, that really affects the experience of having a health issue and coping with it. And I think for myself, so being a man with rheumatoid arthritis, I am in a minority there. Um, and I had, I had the incident I relayed earlier um, was an indication of maybe some kind of discrimination on that when I looked at, you're a young guy, you should be able to physically, you know, just not. Um, and so, so that definitely has been present before. Additionally, in trying to connect with people with rheumatoid arthritis, there rarely is another guy that for me to connect with um, in terms of how we experience it. And there are different pressures in terms of um, where what your identities are. You know, certainly women face some sexism in terms of the dismissiveness and this kind of idea of um, hysteria or where, where meaning it will go straight to like, oh, it's a mental health issue or, um, you know, amongst other issues that they face. And then, but then men kind of, have an equal, similar, yet slightly different experience as well in that regard. Um, additionally, with like with sex differences, women tend to be uh, more relationally oriented, and I think this is a protective thing for them when they face chronic illness because they're more inclined to reach out. They're inclined to have that reach out, be received. Um, you know, as men were 
we're inappropriately taught to um, not be in touch with our vulnerability. Um, I think that can get into more denial um, for men too. And um, and as well as not getting appropriate help seeking or, or not having help seeking behavior when they need the help. Um, it's it's like I'm a psychotherapist and, and it's a sad known fact in my field it's really difficult to get men into getting the care that they need. Um, and so there, there's those kind of intersections. And then on top of it, I'm, I'm a, a gay man, I'm LGBT. And just having a provider that's also accepting and understanding and just respectful of that identity as well, um, that matters too. And so um, that, that brings an extra layer to dealing with things. However, I will say, having been a gay man, I have already faced the process of being a minority. And I worked through issues around that early in my life. And it, I think it actually prepared me to become a minority as someone with a disability or a chronic illness. For example, when I first became ill, a, a group I was involved with, a lot of people talking about just still hiding their illness. And right out the gate, I actually was very open about it. And um, and I it, and it wasn't because I didn't maybe have some trepidation about it. I just had learned that not to guide my life by that kind of fear. And um, and so it was kind of it was a protective factor for me when when I was first diagnosed. And I end up seeing, you know, we, when we become ill, we kind of go through these stages. And um, I think at the beginning, there's kind of a sense in the crisis phase, there's a sense of where you, the disease has its onset, maybe you don't have a diagnosis, really difficult things are going on. We can end up in kind of like a victim mode and mentality. And I want to be clear that we're in a way we're actually are legitimately victimized by the disorder that's going on. But um, when we adopt that psychologically, we end up having more issues. And so in, in being that victim in that victim stage, what do we end up doing? We end up seeing blaming ourselves. That's a big thing in chronic illness, right? This is my fault, or did I do something wrong? Or, um, you know, you get treatment like some of the examples I shared in the medical field, um, that I'm the problem, not the way I'm being treated and the ableism. Um, and we can also end up isolating ourselves in the victim mode. Um, so we pull away more because maybe we don't trust to share or, um, just basically kind of living in fear and letting that dictate what's going on. We can also try to conform inappropriately, meaning like we hide our disability and we pretend it's not there. And then we suffer different, bigger consequences for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a very, it's a very isolated and small place we, be, we many of us begin with. You know, that's, that's kind of the initial stages of being a minority. You're kind of surrounded by um, a sense of isolation and having prejudice and discrimination. Now, if we want to work our way through that, we want to move into other behaviors that, that, that evolve us and where we get connected to our sense of power. And in doing this, what people tend to do, maybe you start to explore more about people like you and maybe you connect communities like you um, maybe you read information more about your disorder, listen to more about it, so maybe you don't feel as powerless, helpless, confused, and in the face of being with a doctor or anyone else so that you have knowledge to speak from what's going on. Um, a big part of this, too, is confronting shame. 
Like we, like human beings are really fascinating, but we're, we're wired to have vulnerabilities. We're wired to age, we're wired to die. And um, yeah, at the same time, we have shame about that process. We hide it or ignore it or deny it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, you touched earlier a little bit on this, but I, a lot of people I think are raised with this kind of moral, I, uh, moral idea around health, right? That if you just did the right things, you're going to be healthy, you know? Mm -hmm. And I just, just wanted to build up and build on top of what you're saying and add that into it. Cause that can lead to that sense of, well, if only if, if good health things happen to good people and bad health things happen to quote unquote bad people or someone who made a mistake, I must've been made a mistake. Like you were saying that mindset of self-blame, you know, I must've done something wrong. And that can also come from a place that's actually a place of seeking certainty and seeking control. Um, so I talk a lot about like, I am a recovering controlled free control freak. I would never say recovered because I'm still, my mind always wants to go to a place of control as like an anxiety reduced mm -hmm. reduction strategy, which is as my therapist tells me, it's fine. If the problem is controllable, the problem is if you're trying to control a problem, that's not controllable, you're just literally, you know, wasting your time. But if you're like, well, okay, I'll just like, I kind of had this very simplistic, mindset of like, well, I have already, but it, it had this weird form of denial that was like, but I'm just going to conquer it. Like, I'm just going to fix it. Like, you know, so don't yeah. worry. I got this. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just don't just, yeah. I'll, I'll tell everyone my, uh, hero's journey, you know, how it ended in like two months when I conquered it and that's it. Like, give me my gold star move on, but it's so much more complicated than that. Anyway, sorry. That's my story. <laughs> but yeah, no, definitely it is. There's this kind of, exactly. Like I, I tried to just think of humans kind of leaning towards being control obsessed anyways. And yeah. kind of this human condition we're in, like we were wired to have power and to act, but at the same time, there's so many things that aren't controllable. And, you know, we saw that like in terms of the macro perspective with illness in the COVID pandemic, where people were just really doubling down on control and, um, and, and whether it's this kind of issue or any stress there, people tend to go first to this control. And you're, I agree with you hundred percent that, you know, the solution isn't trying to control and uncontrollability. The solution is to learn to make peace with mystery, ambiguity, um, and, and access a sense of peace amidst things that we cannot change. Um, I was literally, I was just tight. I'm sorry. I'm like literally typing down the phrase you just said. I loved that access, a sense of peace in the midst of ambiguity. I think that's what you said. I already, my poor brain fog. I think I, I was well, good thing. This is recorded. I'll write it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was that, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, that's like, has become my life goal instead of before my life goal was annihilate all ambiguity, figure out all the answers, feel happy. <laughs> the <Yeah>. end. <laughs> and, and we can end up coming to a deeper inquiry, meaning like is safety arrived at me being able uh, to control everything or is safety arrived at because I trust that whatever will happen, I'll face it. I'll suit up and face it and grow from it. So yeah. it's, it's quite a mind shift for a lot of people but when you shift into the latter you actually do access quite a bit of peace and mm -hmm. and that puts you in a better position to solve the complications and issues that arise yeah yeah ab absolutely oh my gosh and um 
I think that the survival skills you talked about surviving the world initially as like a sexual minority and then learning how to survive it as a, um, someone with a disability or disabled person, it's, um, I never really thought of it as survival tips, but as you were talking, it reminded me about how I actually felt like March and April of 2020, I, in, in a way I was saying, why am I feeling so okay with all of this? Like, I feel like I'm coping better than like, not to be like, it's a competition, but you know, I felt more of a sense of peace with what was happening, even though the first COVID cases were in literally 15 minutes away from where I live, the first COVID cases in the United States. So it was scary, but it was also like, I realized afterwards it was because I had done all this work before on accepting the randomness of life, accepting that you can go to bed one night, wake up the next day to a worldwide pandemic. And that's just how it goes. Like, instead of saying, no, 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 this was my, my plan didn't involve this. I can't cope with this. You know, it was more just, okay. Like this is life. Like the condition of life is suffering and randomness. And, you know, it's not like we, that I am the master controller, you know, of the universe. And, um, you know, we're kind of getting into philosophy a little bit here. And that's something that we had talked about. Yeah. yeah before, yeah. like, and you mentioned, you're a psychotherapist. I would just love to know some of the psychological, you know, mental health tools and coping tools that have been, you know, most helpful for you personally and, and with the patient population that you support. Yeah, sure. I think to just kind of connecting maybe what we were drawing on before, like in chronic illness, there's this term ambiguous loss. And what that means is that when you're facing, you know, with your rheumatoid arthritis and my rheumatoid arthritis, we're facing this, these interjecting moments where we lose something for a while, we get it back, we lose something, we never get it back. It's maybe like a capacity or, or a, a promise that we had, a dream, you know, something along those lines. And so it, it's thought of a little bit differently than a loss that maybe just somebody dies and not to mitigate that that's a difficult per. Uh, process, but it's a different one because there's almost a sense of resolution in knowing that, okay, they're gone. This is how it is. Um, and so we do lean more into, because of facing ambiguous loss, a lot of people find comfort and growth in what we could call like existential psychology. Um, and basically what chronic illness does, in my view, is it puts a magnifying glass on the human condition. So as humans, we all face um, disappointment, suffering, and pain. Uh, we face losses. We face questions of our freedom. How free are we? Um, we face connect, uh, issues related to connection, how isolated or connected we are. And um, rheumatoid arthritis comes into our life and it puts those things like right in our face. And so we're really, we're really invited to kind of work on our sense of, of self in the context of meaning, purpose, um, trying to navigate those issues with the illness that we have. And I think in terms of back to your question of what helps people is if we, we normalize that and normalize it, really everyone's going through these questions. Now they're not going through it in the way that we are totally. Nevertheless, those questions are there about freedom, you know, limitations, uh, making purpose, connection, so on and so forth. And so I think addressing those things in terms of um, coping with your rheumatoid arthritis is very helpful, especially in terms of, you know, our medications, our treatments go only so far. And so what fills in those gaps? 
where do we go from there? And I, in my view, I think a lot of it is an emotional maturation. Um, potentially, if you're a spiritually oriented person, a spiritual maturation and trying to process and understand what you're going through. Um, and, I, and I find those things to be helpful. And they're more making peace uh, with loss and change. And like as humans, we're constantly in change. We don't even know it. You can see this if you do mindfulness exercises or meditation and you hear every sensation, feel every sensation moving. And again, chronic illness magnifies that, like where we're like, whoa, it really is like I'm having all these changes going on. And so it invites us on a bigger level. How do I relate to change? How do I relate to loss in my life? Do I meet it with resistance, control, grasping, denial? Or do I try to integrate it in as a normal part of being a human and maybe become curious with it or interested or make something out of it? I love that. That curiosity for me was like a huge stepping stone between control and acceptance, you know, making peace with acceptance, making messy, maybe peace with exception, acceptance at times, but saying, okay, you don't have to like what's going on in your body right now, but can you can you attend to it, pay attention to it with a mindset of just curiosity and compassion versus a mindset of problem detected, problem detected, must find solution, must find solution, right? Because that's, I mean, our brain is wired to be protective and pain turns the signals on, right? That say danger, danger, alert, you know, and it takes training to train your brain when it comes to chronic pain to say, maybe this isn't as big of a threat as like a lion chasing me down the, you know, um, down the, I was gonna say desert, I guess, do they live in the desert? Um, but you, I, I want to make sure we define, uh, you mentioned existential philosophy, um, cause or existential psychology. I'm not sure everyone will be familiar with that. Um, do you, do you have like a cliff notes <laughs> definition? Yeah. So just kind of reiterate, so existential psychology is rooted in existential philosophy. Um, and it's basically, the, in defining existential psychology, it's kind of like a, a religious, it transcends any kind of religion, but just kind of people looking at what do humans go through? What is the human condition like through, throughout your life? And through this philosophy, there's been four, what are called ultimate concerns. And I touched into some of those. Concern number one is captivity versus freedom. You know, as humans, we have this longing for freedom. With our rheumatoid arthritis, we have a longing to be free from it or free and vital in the world. And at the same time, you could feel captive and be somewhat captive by uh, your illness. The second concern is meaning versus meaninglessness. So we have to face life with our difficulties and have this question, is there meaning in this or is there not? And um, according to existential psychology, we're the one that defines that, that we don't seek the meaning outwardly, we cultivate it in, in our lives and we ascribe what it means to us and for other people in the world. But the third ultimate concern is connection versus isolation. You know, as human beings, we're independent, but we're also tribal and we need our support groups to survive. And rheumatoid arthritis, this becomes a big question. If you're isolated in your house, you're isolated in your bed, um, and furthermore, if you're out with people and you're experiencing symptoms, but other people aren't, there's an isolating factor in that, um, you know, and many more. And then the fourth ultimate concern is life versus death. And in other words, facing limitations and losses. 
you know, that we're constantly losing and gaining in life. And do you, like, what do we do about that? What, do, what does that mean to us? And um, do we cultivate room for it within our hearts and our life and our psyches? And so exploring those themes in the face of your rheumatoid arthritis can kind of give organization maybe to what feels like chaotic. You just feel like distressed in your mind and your heart. But to recognize, oh, this is the ultimate concern I'm dealing with right now. I'm coping with meaning versus meaninglessness. And it can kind of guide us. And furthermore, it builds beyond just skills for, for coping with things. This is like a bigger framework for understanding what we're going through that can be grounding for people. I love that the word grounding in that context, because it can feel like so destabilizing. Like so many people tell me, you know, on the first meeting of the support groups that I run, it it's like, I feel like a bomb just got dropped in my life, you know, or that like that shock, um, especially if the diagnosis has come on really fast, or maybe they thought, oh, I just had carpal tunnel. And then I'm like, huh, now I have carpal tunnel in both wrists and a finger. This is weird. You know, and then suddenly it's, you get this diagnosis. Um, and so you can feel very much like everything I thought was true is no longer true, but then these fundamental you know, philosophical truths can, can ground you to say, okay, I still have, you know, or I guess maybe I'm trying to, I'm twisting this a little bit, but saying, you know, like I have some freedom, you know, um, I think there, I remembering, uh, Victor Frankel in man's search for meeting, he was talked, you know, he had lived through being in the Holocaust. Um, and he, um, in a concentration camp and he said, you know, um, the, the ultimate freedom is well, in his opinion, the ultimate freedom was to choose your attitude in any situation, which we can argue whether how, what degree we could actually can totally choose our attitude. I'm like, I'm not sure I would feel strong enough to choose my attitude if I was like starving and like in a con I'm like, oh my gosh, you are amazing to be able to do that. But, um, you know, you can choose, you have some freedom you have, you know, you can attempt to strive for some meaning, um, and, and, um, and, in, in, in even the most difficult moments. So I, I love that personally. Yeah. You can tell I went to liberal arts college. So I'm like, we can talk about this stuff all day. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, um, Victor Frankl drew existential philosophy. So oh, okay. Drew from Nietzsche quite a bit. So that it, it, it's like his book, Man's Search for Meaning can be a great resource for people um, who are facing their RA diagnosis and coming to terms with how do I face these things that you can't, I don't have full control over. Um, so for sure, and and I want to be clear too that the like attitude um, work working on our attitude isn't an invalidation or a dismissiveness or a Pollyannish denial because I think people can hear that, and and because of past experiences of people having inappropriate responses, you know, like pull your, yourself up by your bootstraps kind of stuff, that they can filter it that way. But it, it really isn't that we still honor the, all the feelings, all the losses. It's just, if we can't control something, do we work on how we relate to it and how we conceptualize it? And, and actually people can find quite a bit of relief from that. In fact, psychological research shows us that when big events have happened in one's life, they tend to go back to their same happiness level. We call it a happiness level set point. And yes. there was a study on um, people who'd won the lottery and people who had newly become paraplegic and it, found on average people return to how they were before those events in terms of their level of happiness mm -hmm. so 
that doesn't what that does is doesn't paint a sense of like hopelessness for it but what it does is it, it shows us how we overestimate how the events affect us and influence our life and we're not really always that great at even predicting what will make us happy so yeah it it reminds me a little also of um the hedonic treadmill this idea that we keep thinking you know, okay, I'll achieve the next thing and then I'll be happy. You know, or if I get a diet, like before I was diagnosed, I was like, all I want is all I care about in the whole world, wide world right now is just someone to tell me what's wrong with my body, you know? And then once I got the diagnosis, I'm like, okay, now all I want is something to fix yeah. it. Okay. Then now all I, oh, I'm in remission. Now all I want yeah. is this remission to last forever. Mm. And that, you know, yeah. it's like, we have to be so careful. Like, that's like, having actually this is one of the best things about having social support i think and having access to like a friend group and family you know is that we can remember things like yeah when my son was six weeks old all i wanted was for him to sleep more now he's nine and i'm not sitting here every day being like i'm so grateful my child sleeps through the night right yeah. <laughs> and then like replaced those worries with new ones so yeah i just find all of this like this is very, this overlaps with, in my mind, with the acceptance of commitment therapy too, a, a, a bit. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm guessing it's like drawn acceptance of commitment therapy. I know is newer than acceptance or existential philosophy. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's, I guess in, in your um, psychotherapy practice, is it, would it be correct to say that you're kind of like, a lot of times people say, well, what kind of therapist should I look for? What kind of counselor should I look for? And it's hard, right? Because you don't want to be like, well, I only, I want someone that only uses acceptance commitment therapy or only uses existential psychology or only uses CBT because my impression from the ones I've worked with is that they kind of pull from whatever tools mm -hmm. will help the client. Is that what yeah. you would say? Okay. Yeah, I would say I'm an integrative psychotherapist. So I integrate acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and existential mm -hmm. psychotherapy. And um, I'm also affirmative therapist and meaning like I it was um, some feminist psychology what that means too is that I also integrate our understanding of structures and systems and how they marginalize us or contribute to our mental health issues and not certainly relevant for having a disability or a chronic illness um, in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy I think that can be great because you can end up having a lot of distortions in your thinking when you first have our not just when you're first diagnosed or first experienced symptoms, but when you go back into a crisis phase where your symptoms escalate or change and intensify, and that can teach us to monitor our own thinking. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy, it's, it's more of a newer package therapy, but it's actually older than all of them because it's based on Buddhist psychology. Oh, so it right. draws from the Buddhist religion and philosophy. It's not, a, it's not teaching you how to, you know, join a specific buddhist religion but it's drawing on what we understand from science really helps in from buddhist philosophy um mm -hmm. and it's actually acceptance and commitment therapy is the number one recommended therapy by the american psychological association for chronic pain and chronic illness so it's a, it's a great thing to make sure that you if you can find it and use it that that you do. And then existential psychology is almost more of a philosophical kind of conceptual way of understanding things. It's less of like um, a skill teaching. Um, it's more about right. just how do, how do we create our own philosophy, our own meaning, and like our own sense of spirituality, if that's how we define it. 
Um, and so I integrate all of those. And I just, too, before I move on to this, I just wanted to comment on when you're talking about how hedonic treadmill and how we yeah. want things. I tend to think of it this way. I, I think humans, as humans, we all want the same thing, something else. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of, you know, whether it's RA, whether you don't have RA, you know, we, we want something else. And so acceptance and commitment therapy actually kind of teaches us to move out of that kind of mindset as well. And so it can be very beneficial in that regard. Yeah, I think, and I know, you know, just from my very probably too much activity on social media, I it's it's a it's a shame that the word acceptance can be very it's it, it's unfortunate that the word acceptance is very loaded because I know that there have been people who've said, well, you know, my my doctors or my therapist said I just have to accept it now. And like, and there is a point where you do get to the end of the road in, in terms of treatments that are going to resolve your pain or address, you know, the disease progression. And so that you do deserve to have some tools to try to, you know, still live the best life you can, but it can feel like, right. Um, perception is reality, right? So the reality that to the patient can feel sometimes like, well, they're just saying, they're just dismissing me saying, you know, go away. There's something more I can do for you. It's like, no, there's something more I can do to you for, for, to fix you, like to control the potentially controllable problems. Those are all controlled to the best that we can do. Now there's this technique, you know, acceptance commitment therapy, which can help you cope, cope and feel a fulfilling, meaningful existence with all these uncontrollable things. So but it can feel so much like they're just giving up on me or they're just saying, I have to accept it. Like my life sucks. You know, I don't know if yeah. you've ever come across that. Oh, totally. Okay. I think <laughs> as human beings, we kind of have a knee-jerk reaction, like a resistant idea of acceptance. I think this is amplified by Western American culture because we're so into the idea of conquering and limitlessness and the ultimate freedom. But really acceptance isn't um, meaning that you're just like, turning over and, and letting harmful things happen to you or that you like harmful things happening to you. I think people get hung up on that. It's that we're accepting that we're recognizing the limitation, the boundary of where we have power. And, and then where we work to, in the area that we have power, we work on that and we do what we can. But then with the, the area beyond our power, we let go. And I think um, it, it reminds me of a really important quote that came from Bruce Kramer. He was a, a, a famous educator and he was dealing with ALS at the end of his life. And he, he had stated, he was talking about how we tend to think we're going to fight things, right? I'm going to fight RA. I'm going to fight my illness. There's this kind of oppositional antagonism and kind of this antagonistic energy we bring to things. And he posed this question. He said, um, he, he would say of his illness rather than fighting it, quote, how should we grow into the de demands of what is beyond us? And he said, which is a different question from how shall we fight us? So how do we grow into facing rheumatoid arthritis? Because our fighting isn't going to solve anything. It will do is it'll make us tense all the time. It'll make us chronically disappointed and frustrated. And then that leads to helplessness, which then turns into despair. Well, oh, and there's, you're really reminding me, and I hope this is helpful for people listening, but what, when I first started developing programs to support, you know, self, what they call in, 
in, I think, you know, this OT and health world is like self-management, you know, the skills with a chronic illness to manage the day-to-day demands, including your emotional, the emotional demands, coping demands, and the logistical demands, and just the knowledge of the basics of how to control your, you know, what the controllable things like protecting your joints and, you know, the importance of exercise, all that stuff. But what I realized is that like, when I started trying to figure out how do I get this product, you know, out there, this program out there, room to thrive. And it was like, it felt like, um, that so many other programs were promising those fighting things, you know, promising like to heal, promising that you're going to, after 12 weeks, you know, in my program, after 12 weeks, you're going to heal your gut. You're going to heal this or that. You're going to hack your vagus nerves. So you never get feel stress again. Or, you know, and I was like, how do I get people to buy into this when this, I I'm ethically, I, I cannot tolerate obviously anything that's like, um, antith- like that's not consistent with my own, you know, the values and my beliefs that I don't think we can, you know, there aren't, there isn't a scientific like cure for RA. There isn't Um, a lot of evidence for a lot of the other programs people are like peddling out there on social media. So I'm like, how do I resolve? Like, how do I, the the thing that it's like, I'm in a rock and a hard place. It's like when you're, you know, you want to, you, you need job experience to get the job, but you can't get the job have experience. It's like people need the skills that I'm teaching about accepting it and that it's, you're not going to conquer it in order to take the program that would teach you how to do that because you're like, but I don't want that. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, how do you oh, say yeah. sell people what they, I got this advice, like from a business thing that I like webinar that I went to is like, sell them what they want give them what they need. But I'm like, but I'm not willing to do that. I'm what I'm going to say, like, <laughs> actually like bait, that sounds like bait and switch, you know? So anyway, I figured it oh, out I'm- because people are tired. Like they, they get tired. They, they cycle through programs. They try the autoimmune protocol. They try this, they, they try different, you know, and then it's, um, do you know what I'm saying? Like you, they, no, no, they, and it, it feels like I kind of had this phrase that just came into my brain one day. It was like hope beyond healing. You know, like, what if you don't heal your condition? What if you have pain the rest of your life? Like there's still hope for you, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's hard to say it's that. Really to people. Hard. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard. Well, and what came to my mind as you're talking about that is I'm thinking that sometimes there's a conflict between what we want and what we need mm. and they're not always the same thing yeah, um, yeah. and life teaches that us that over and over again if we're, we open our eyes and we're open our hearts to that um at the same time there's also a difference between healing and curing um if you do if you have an in, at this time rheumatoid arthritis is an incurable disorder that doesn't mean that there aren't isn't wiggle room in how you treat it. It doesn't mean that there isn't hope. Um, but if we know you're not going to have a cure right now, maybe there will be more road. What does it mean to be healed and to be on a healing journey? Mm-hmm. And that becomes a really important question that I think reorients people actually to more power in facing their illness. Because if we let go of agendas, of things that we can't control. I, I like this phrase, hope can be misleading if the task is unattainable. Yeah, yeah. So so we do need hope in our life, but if we hope for the wrong things, we set ourselves up back up for chronic deployment frustration, which then goes into helplessness, powerlessness, which then goes into despair, which even can go to suicide. And yeah. so if we follow that kind of whole causal chain, we wanna interrupt that ahead of time. 
So mm-hmm. certainly need hope, but we, we must ask ourselves, am I hoping for a productive thing? Mm-hmm. Hoping I'm going to, you know, have a certain elixir and then my rheumatoid arthritis is going to be totally gone. That's a misguided hope. Right, right. Yeah, yes. Um, I and I appreciate I think the word healing is different in different contexts, but it does I, I did talk to somebody on this podcast earlier who said, you know, the she reminded me the root word of healing is to make whole, you know. So yeah, mm-hmm. on a, definitely on a philosophical level or an emotional level, can you feel like a whole full person? And I have this like very defensive, like knee jerk, like reaction to like, yeah, I'm already whole. Like I don't need to, I, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I'm whole, like I, I, this is fine. I'm fine. But that's another one of my interesting psychological things, but I was going to, because we do, I know we have to wrap up in a little, you know, shortly, but was there anything else you wanted to say? You, you used a phrase that when we were chatting before, Uh, recording about a religious spirituality I thought that was kind of interesting you've touched on it but I know if there's anything more you want to say about that yeah sure um we touched into um oh oh, just before we say that I just want to quickly comment on your your comment about wholeness which I love thank you for sharing that in this framework wholeness then isn't that we are without what we don't want wholeness is that we include what we don't want within our hearts our lives and our minds so the, oh, it's, a, it's a deeper sense of what wholeness really is. Mm-hmm. I, and then to answer your other question, so we talked about existential psychology. Um, now through psychological science and research, there are six different things that have been supported by science that help in their psychological health when they're facing distress, opposition, and life. Um, now these things are found in a number of religious practices, um, but it's an a-religious value because whether you're atheist, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, anything and everything, you can do these things and, and possibly find some benefit from it. Um, the number one thing is gratitude. What am I grateful for? There's research, there was a research study out of Stanford. People had to write five things they were grateful every day for three weeks. Depression significantly improved. So what am I grateful for? In my own rheumatoid arthritis, it, it could be like, maybe I'm having a difficult day and I'm in my bed. Well, I'm thankful that my bed is comfortable. <laughs> I'm thankful that I've structured my life that I can have these moments or, you know, things like that. The second thing is forgiveness. You know, an interesting thing about chronic illness is research shows us when people first end up having it, a common theme is they feel betrayed by their body. There's this, this sense of betrayal. Yes. Can we, can we forgive the disorder? Can we forgive um, our bodies? I think in my personal story, I was very angry the first uh, onset of it, and I was mad at my body. Me too. And through work, I got to a point where I was like, wow, I'm thankful for my body. Like it is trying so hard amidst this disorder. And there was such a shift for me in that, that kind of framework, adopting that framework. Mm-hmm. So forgiveness can be a big thing and forgiveness is a sticky thing like acceptance people have a knee-jerk reaction that well if I forgive them that means I'm sensing to more harm or mm. it's not what forgiveness forgiveness is in fact one definition I like of forgiveness is um giving up on ever having a different path hmm. so, do hmm. we let go of the idea like oh just wasn't diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis or if I hadn't experienced yeah, yeah. 
this is a life I was supposed to have. Like I was yeah. supposed to be running marathons in my twenties. I wasn't yeah. supposed to be going to doctor's appointments and I'm too young, but it's all from this ableist assumption that like, it, well, it can't happen to me. You know, it can't yeah. happen to me. I did all the yeah. right things. You know, I exercised and ate well and didn't do drugs. It's like health is random. Anyway, sorry. Okay. You're, you're going, you're, hey, very, I, you're, li- you're going through this list. This is very helpful. Yeah, no, I went through that as well. And if I pull back from that, I'm like, wow, that's really titled of me, right? <laughs> like, I think I'm owed all this stuff. Who do you think you are? That's exactly. totally true. Yeah, that's, I think the same thing. Like, wow, exactly. how privileged are you to have been 21 years old and still be able to hold on to that? In most parts of history, people would have had to face that truth of all the things out of your control when they were like four years old watching their mom die in childbirth or whatever. I mean, like that's like the reality of most, you know, most humans in the last few million years. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. And, and then for me, when it was, I shouldn't be this way or it should be this way, I thought I, I started to understand that I was expressing arrogance. Like I was like, mm. I started to ask myself, who am I to know what it should be? Like these bodies are going to do what they do. This earth is going to be as it is. Like things mm-hmm. are going to unfold. And so it's a, it comes from a very vulnerable place where we're trying to cope with our vulnerability by doubling down on entitlement and um, a sense of grandiosity or arrogance. And this doesn't mean we're those kind of like, oh, I'm such an arrogant person. It means we're having natural reactions that are unhelpful to this situation. So right. I, right. I think it's really, if you do cognitive therapy, that will help you recognize more of that kind of stuff for everyone who's listening. Then the third um, scientifically supported spiritual practice is self-acceptance. How do we accept ourselves? Do we want to accept ourselves? What does that mean? Um, you know, in rejecting an illness identity, the research shows us there are two polar um, approaches to chronic illness that people face that cause them problems. The illness rejection, so where they just want to deny and keep pushing through and ignore. Um, that would be a lack of acceptance. And the other is chronic illness engulfment, meaning like everything is about our illness. And so we want to stay in a balance in there. And self-acceptance becomes an important component in having that balance. Because also when we accept ourselves as a chronically ill self, we are that and we're a lot of other things too. I love that. Yep. Number four is compassion. So are we able to, compassion is our capacity to be with what we're feeling or what another is feeling without judgment or resistance. And we approach what's going on with a sense of self-kindness and really suspending the judgments that come up in our head. Um, And so it's learning to sit and be with what is, and that includes our pain with rheumatoid arthritis. How do I be with my pain? Now in the height of our pain, when it's very acute, it's probably not the best time to maybe be super mindful. You can do things that kind of distract you. But in lower levels of our pain, if we cultivate a mindfulness practice, which is connected to compassion, it can be quite beneficial for us psychologically. Now, the fifth thing is connection. So connection, man, is really a a large part of the chronic illness experience. We can feel severed from maybe family members who don't have what we're going through. Maybe our partners, our you know, our friends. Um, furthermore, we can end up housebound, bedbound, and feel isolated. Um, so connection becomes a very important thing to cultivate. And within the illness research, we find that people who maintain um, 
uh, relationships that have what is called emotional constriction. These are relationships where people aren't allowed to express who they are in a safe way and they are met with judgment or invalidation. Those actually affect our chronic illness symptoms and make them worse. So I, there was one study of people with rheumatoid arthritis and if they got in a fight one day with someone they loved or were connected to, the next day their pain was worse. So that is not surprising, or at least, yeah, but, but yeah. It's, it's not something that people talk about, right? Everyone wants to talk about diet and exercise, but what about <laughs> these things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So connection is a real issue as our relationships. And we want to surround ourselves by people who aren't invalidating, who aren't dismissive. Mm-hmm. People don't need to know everything about our illness, but I would hope that everyone would have a standard that those that they're close to are at least open to maybe knowing more or. Mm-hmm. accepting us as we are mm-hmm. the sixth thing um that is supported by science is for us to again we go back to the meaning making and purpose what's my purpose in this you know for me in my personal life part of the purpose of my illness has been using it in instances like these like can i combine what i've learned professionally and help um people who are going through similar things that i've gone through and that's been a purpose for me me too. Yeah. It's really gratifying. Um, and it, yeah, sorry. I just, I, I didn't mean to jump in so fast, but I was like, me too. <laughs> and I think, well, I'm hoping that, resonate with everybody. yeah, yeah. I think it's, I'm just thinking some, so many of these are reminding me of like, um, what newly diagnosed people, you know, have to contend with it's a lot, you know, when you've, when you have been living with it for a while and you have like things are kind of, you learn these things like in little sprinkles over time. And I, I'm always on this quest to like support the newly diagnosed population because it's like, okay, I want to like shepherd you in, you know, take you under my wing. But also I think sometimes I, um, sorry, this is just me self-reflecting, but like I kind of like shoot a fire hose of like information at them. Like it's okay. You're going to accept yourself and it's going to be great. And you're going to connect it. Oh, and I'm like, well, it's probably too much all at once. Um, but yeah, yeah they, yeah. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to comment on that. Um, some of this, these spiritual practices, these six ones I just outlined, um, aren't always appropriate at the acute onset of your illness. First, you, you maybe want to get a little more stabilized. Um, and if you're doing a therapy, maybe you're doing cognitive therapy first and, mm-hmm. and doing a lot of problem solving advocacy work, um, you know, things along those lines. So sometimes these approaches are more appropriate at different phases of, of where you're at. But I will say this, the sooner you get to them, typically the better your experience yeah. will be. I was kind of, um, I spoke with a pain researcher earlier, a doctor often Hassett, who specializes in fibromyalgia and chronic pain conditions. And, um, we talked a bit about Dr. Marty Seligman's work in like positive psychology, you know, at UPenn. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting is that he did, he developed a program he called like depression inoculation, which was like a cognitive behavior therapy based program that you would do with kids who didn't show necessary, who had life conditions that are associated with higher rates of like depression and anxiety, but weren't showing those yet, right? Like elementary Mm -hmm. aged kids who, um, were not in the clinical phase of any of those things yet, but they're like, let's inoculate them against that by teaching them these, these skills. And they were like things like, um, basic, you know, 
basic CBT stuff of like figuring out the distortions and like, you know, thoughts are not facts and all that stuff. And I, yeah, so I think it's, it's, you're so right though. It's like, um, like, I feel like so often the new diagnosis, they just, they want someone to say it gets better. And I think I'm just so stubborn sometimes with like, I'm like, I can't tell, like, first of all, it's like, it depends what the meaning of is, is like, it depends on what you mean <laughs> it, right. Yeah, it yeah. And I'll just say your, your symptoms may not get better. Uh, they will likely get better. Um, but they may not, but you, I guarantee you that you can get better at coping with your symptoms. Like that is a guarantee that is possible for every person, you know, but oh, that's I mean, great. yeah, I try, I try to, I, I just, yeah. sorry. I'm just like, think about this stuff all the time because it's like, um, it's yeah, it's you're, you're, uh, yeah, but you said it very diplomatically, but it's true that, you, that like, uh, it is not the most appropriate time to, um, at the very beginning for some people, they're just not ready yet. It's kind of like Glennon. I don't know if you have follow anything. Glennon Doyle Melton, um, says she's a writer. Yeah. I'm aware of her, but yeah. I haven't read her book. What, what does she say? Well, she's, this, this is a weird analogy. She says, write from your scars, not your wounds. Like she talks about like she, which is actually kind of funny because she's kind of gone back on that. But what she was saying is like, she waits until like she's gotten some clarity on her issue before writing about it and putting it into words. So it's almost like in some cases, it's like the diagnosis is such a fresh open wound. It's like, you have to wait for that acute wound to kind of get out of the fight or flight phase emotionally to then say, okay, let's look at these because the coping skills you and I are talking about with like existential philosophy or in, you know, psychology and self-acceptance and compassion, these are long-term skills, right? These are not like, yeah. let's do a two-hour workshop and you're going to learn all this. Although I did take a course in ACT as a brief intervention. And, you know, I don't know uh -huh. if you've ever done that one, but um, it was interesting. It was like about, can you actually teach people the skills of acceptance and commitment therapy in like literally like 20 minute, like primary care length encounters <laughs> and uh -huh. it was cool. I'm like, yeah, again, that is a ambitious goal, but, um, but the, but you know, the, 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 these are things you're going to be working on the rest of, you know, your, your life. And in, in a weird way, I think that learning these things, it hasn't just helped me as a patient learning these, um, this, the self-acceptance, the acceptance of my body and what it can and can't do and feeling, you know, compassion, connection, gratitude is actually made me like a better parent. It's made me a better spouse. Like it's because it's like, I, um, it's hard to put into words, but I just use, I use these skills all the time and navigating all kinds of difficulties, you know, whether it's my son has someone on the playground, that's not being nice to him or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's, these are just really yeah, life. Yeah. No, I love that. I, yeah. and I even think that's part of like purpose making, you know, like I'm a yeah. better, I'm better at this because of it. Yeah. Like, and again, it's not a Pollyannish denial. We still hold space for the reality that our rheumatoid arthritis does cause some losses and grief and pain, some alterations. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that we're also adding to that and we're rounding it out in a balanced way. So yeah. I, I, I love every, everything you said. I think that's great. Well, echo right back at you. And I do, I recognize that we've gone over time. So I just, I just want to wrap it up with um, the last question that I usually ask is what is your best? Well, I, okay, I have two, I lied. I have two questions. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. What, uh, what is, well, I mean, all of this is great advice for newly diagnosed patients, but do you have like anything that comes to mind? If I say like, what's your 
best advice for newly diagnosed people with rheumatoid arthritis? I would say it's okay to not be okay, number one. That it, you're, it's okay to let everything unfold as you maybe cry, you get confused, you're afraid, you maybe you even blow up in anger as long as it's nonviolent. violent <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, you know, mm-hmm. moments that you have, let, let that be. Also, um, get connected to really good providers. Don't hesitate to eliminate a provider if you immediately don't feel comfortable or there's an issue. Um, be patient with yourself right now um, and double down on your relationship with people in your life, the relationship you have with people who've always been emotionally supportive. Mm-hmm. Get connected as soon as you can to some kind of support group um, with people who have your diagnosis, um, like the group you offer. <laughs> I didn't would, aim to say <laughs> <that>. <laughs> yeah, No, no, she, she did not. <laughs> Um, but that's really important because it, 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 we're soothed through connection as human beings. So the more connected you are to support, the more soothed your nervous system will be. You'll also then will to, if you're in a support group, draw on the collective wisdom of the group, the resources everybody knows about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes patients know more than the doctors about some things. Um, and uh, I think that's a really good thing. And then also just Try to stay out of predicting the future because you don't know what's going to unfold for you. I know that that can be a hard moment, but just focus on doing the next best thing for you as you are. And bigger than that, have faith in yourself that you will grow to learn how to face whatever happens here with your disorder. Oh, I'm sorry. Oops, I muted myself. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I was, my dog was snoring. So I muted. <laughs> um, what is it? Last one. What does it mean for you to live a good life and, or to thrive with rheumatic disease? I mean, kind of everything you just said is good advice for that, but. <laughs> I would one, one thing in answer to that question would be when I was younger and certainly when I didn't have rheumatoid arthritis, I oriented my idea of what life in an achievement focused way that my life was about, I get, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and I'm going to mark this off the list. And, and maybe this has just come with natural age, but also maybe the disorder itself as well. But I, I reframed that my life is an experience and, and that a rich life that the goal of my life isn't necessarily like a happy life. Do I want happiness? Yes, I do. But my goal is to have a rich life, rich of experiences. And rheumatoid arthritis provides this incredibly odd, challenging, um, educational experience. And when I approach it that way, like I see things I would never have seen without my disorder. And there's a lot of value in that to me. I love that. I, yeah, it really reminds me of the, the point you made about happiness reminds me a lot of the happiness trap, which is my most recommended book, but I think man's search for meaning would be right behind that. That was a, they're both really helpful. Well, let me add one thing to that. And it's a search also shows us the more we pursue happiness for happiness sake, the less happy we are. So true. Uh, and that happiness is really found in, in meaningful connection. Um, and, doing what we really love and losing ourselves in that. So Mm -hmm. 
A hundred percent. Yeah. I have totally flipped my expectations on happiness. Um, yeah. Based on all of that knowledge and research. Um, and where can people find you online if they like to connect there? Um, timothywyman.com. That's T-I-M-O-T-H-Y-W-E-Y-M-A-N-N.com. Nice. And I then do, you have... I do, I do psycho, sorry. I do psychotherapeutic services. I do educational and consultational, consultative uh, work as well. And I do treat chronic pain and chronic illness. And is that just in the, your home state or is that? Um, I'm licensed in Utah, Arizona, and Iowa. Okay. I, um, however, if you're outside of those, some states have a provision due to limited mental health per, care providers where I could potentially work with you depending on your state uh, law. Oh, so that's really good state. to know. That's really, really good to know. I know like with occupational therapy, for example, we're working on like an interstate licensure compact that would allow all states that are in the compact to provide services to anyone else in those states, which, That's wonderful. which I think should, I think it's a lot of all the fields are looking at that PT is looking at it. I, I would be shocked if psychologists weren't looking at it. Yeah. Um, I hope my field eventually does. So. Yeah. Yeah. But, Oh, well, I just really, really appreciate your time and insights. This has been very, very edifying. And I can't, I can't wait to re-listen because I'm like, oh, I need to like pause and just like take in, like you had so much, just so many great thoughts. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. And thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to do this. And I really just um, appreciate all the good work that you're doing. Well, thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. Well, we hopefully, I'm, I'm sure this won't be the last time we chat. So, um, but this is just bye-bye for now. <laughs> Have a good rest of your day. <laughs> Sounds good. You too. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.